of the Christian life. This is one of the first truths that is taught or should be taught to the new believer. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. We know that so well that I'm afraid that the, this verse is spoken sometimes in such a familiar way that it just passes in one ear proverbially and goes out the other ear. And you might even wonder why we would take some time, not just this lesson, but actually a few lessons, considering and revisiting this very basic topic. I want to give you two reasons why we might do something like this. The first is, it's always helpful to remember the basics or to remember fundamentals. I'm told that Rick Berry, many of you remember, he actually, I think, finished his career here in Houston. A lot of time, most of the time he spent with the Golden State Warriors. But he was one of the, if not the leading free throw shooter of all time in the NBA. Rick Barry, I'm told by somebody that knows him, routinely remained after practice long after his teammates had gone home. And he worked on, believe it or not, his free throws. He was after practice working on his free throws. He's the number one free throw shooter in the league. And all the guys that couldn't hit the broadside of a barn are out partying while he's still working on his free throws. It's no wonder that he was one of the best of all time. Ronald Reagan was one of the greatest political communicators that I personally have ever observed. I know there were others in the past that might have been up to his standards or even better, but the ones that I've, of the ones that I've observed, Ronald Reagan is up near the top of the list. He seemed to have an innate ability to turn a phrase in just the right way and just the right timing to get his point across. But you got to know, Reagan worked at it. He reviewed the fundamentals on a regular basis, the fundamentals of public speaking, persuasive public speaking, on a regular basis. I had the privilege of meeting and working briefly with the woman, Dorothy Sarnoff, who was instrumental. It was one of his speech coaches. She was instrumental in preparing President Reagan for most of the major speeches of his presidency. And she acknowledged his natural ability, but she also told me of his willingness to work regularly on the basics of public speaking. No matter who you are or how much you know, it's always helpful to return to the fundamentals. But there's another reason we might revisit a basic subject like confession of sin, and that is this. The possibility exists that subtle misconceptions have crept into our understanding of this very basic doctrine that could have a negative effect on the theology that is built upon this foundational doctrine. If the foundation has a flaw, even a very small one, the building will be weaker than it should be, and cracks will eventually show up on the wall. I don't want any cracks in your spiritual life. So we must have a solid foundation in the basics. As 2 Samuel chapter 11 concluded, it was recorded there that the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. It was evil in his sight. He was not where he was supposed to be, which led to him committing adultery, which led to him ultimately committing the sin of murder the murder of Uriah the Hittite. These were evil acts. 
by an otherwise very good man. It's perplexing how David could do this. But it does demonstrate to us that even very good men and women, I might add, can perform very evil acts. It's possible. Now, there's a theology out there that says that's impossible. If you are truly righteous, if you have been truly been saved, you can't do these things. David's a perfect example of a very good man doing some really bad things. No one is immune. And that's a lesson that we would be wise to learn from David in this passage. No one is immune. You may ask rhetorically, well, are you saying that I'm not immune or you're not immune from committing the sin of adultery or even murder? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because as soon as you say, that could never be me, I could never get so angry that I murdered someone. I could never be so lonely or so whatever it would take that I would commit adultery. As soon as that idea goes through your head, Satan is going to be right on you. And you're going to put yourself in a very vulnerable position. None of us is immune to any sin. And that's why this theology that says that you are is so bad. Because then people commit these sins and they think, well, I must not be saved at all. I've talked to people, that not that have committed murder, but that have committed things that absolutely shocked them. And one of the things that one man told me, sitting in front of me weeping, was, I don't see how he could even be saved and have done that. And I said, listen, have you personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life? He says, yes, you know that I have. I said, you have done that. Yes, you know that I have. I said, then you are saved. You did a bad thing. And there's no excusing that. Now you need to go to God and ask forgiveness for it or confess that sin. But just the fact that you did it doesn't mean that you're excluded from salvation. David is the example. But just to know that in principle doesn't help us. Well, theoretically, it's fine if we're going to have arguments about this over the dinner table, heaven forbid, or over coffee, more likely. But it's the practical application that I want us to get, that we should always, every one of us, be on guard. Because none of these sins is above us so far that we're not susceptible. We need to be careful. Please don't take that as an insult. I don't mean it as an insult at all. I mean it as a warning. Because as soon as we think we're so high and mighty that now that I'm saved, it's impossible for me to do this or that or perhaps the other thing, you're setting yourself up for a fall. That is not a humble attitude. So David has done something that's evil in the sight of the Lord. A very good man has done a very evil thing. That's the end of chapter 11. Chapter 12 opens up with a visit to David by the prophet Nathan. We met this prophet back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When David wanted to build a temple, Nathan at first thought it was a good idea. Then he inquired of the Lord and found out that it wasn't a good idea that Solomon was going to build the temple, not David. Nathan is also the one that relayed God's giving of the Davidic covenant to David. We've met him before. This is a man that David knows, that he respects, and that he trusts. So it's no accident that this is the man that God sends to confront David about this great evil that he's done. First, Nathan tells a parable. But it doesn't really appear to me like David knows that it's a parable. He assumes that it's a true story. Look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, 
which he bought and nourished, and they grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or from his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's reaction to this is going to be predictable. We're often blind to our own faults. But we've got 20-20 vision when it comes to somebody else. And David is going to be livid. Look at verses 5 and 6. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, notice that oath, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Notice those last words, no compassion. Ordinarily, compassion is one of David's strong suits. But it wasn't in chapter 11. There was no compassion in chapter 11. Hardly. We couldn't hardly say there was any compassion. He was ordinarily a compassionate man, but not here. It's hardly compassionate to take a man's wife, commit adultery with her, and then kill him. I think we could agree that doesn't demonstrate compassion. It's an understatement to say he has no compassion. Since the theft of the lamb in Nathan's parable was not a capital offense, like murder and adultery were under the Mosaic Law, David's reaction is probably a bit over the top. This man deserves to die because he's such a jerk, at least in David's eyes, and according to David's standards of justice. This man deserves to die because he's a thoroughgoing, 100% jerk. We saw a flash of this previously in David's reaction to Nabal. Remember that. Nabal had insulted David and his men, and David intended to kill Nabal and everybody that was associated with him. So we've seen this flash before. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 21 and 22, Now David said, Surely in vain I have guarded this man and all that he has in the wilderness. So nothing has been missed that belonged to him. And he returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David. You see that oath again. May God do so to the enemies of David and more, if, if by morning I leave as, as many as one male of any who belong to him. He intended to kill them all. And then you remember Abigail comes along and says, is there any chance you could calm down about this for just a second? <laughs> and let's talk. It was an overreaction then. In 1 Samuel chapter 25. And it's a little bit of an overreaction now. But here's the point. This is a big point. David hates injustice. Even if he is a bit bit over the top with regard to his reaction. But this is bringing something out in his character. And God does this, and this is an understatement too, so brilliantly through the prophet Nathan. He wants David to condemn himself. To see his own sin. To use David's own strength against him. His own strength being he hates injustice. But he's just committed an injustice. And he's blind to it. He can see 20-20 injustice in other people. But he can't see it when he did it himself. If if Nathan would have just told him, you've done an evil thing. David's probably going to go into some sort of denial. But when he condemns himself, everything changes. Look at verses 7 through 12. Then 
Nathan said to David, these are probably some of the most well-known words in the Old Testament. You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who appointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the swords of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. What stunning words they must have been for David to hear. You are the man. This hatred of injustice that marked David's life turned right back upon him. He must have been stunned. Verse 8 does deserve just a little bit of attention. It's been a confusing verse for a long time. The verse reads again, I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, that's literally into your bosom, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. It looks like, on first glance, that God has ordained David's polygamy. Do you see how someone might come from that verse and think so, since I gave you your... Master's wife, if you needed, if you'd wanted, I'd have given you more. But that's not necessarily the case. By Oriental custom, all the possessions of a king transferred to the next occupant of the throne. Saul had one wife. Now, we don't know much about Ishbosheth's personal life. His family life is never revealed. But David would have been responsible, as the next king, he would have been responsible for the care of the women that were involved. But there's no indication that David ever took Saul's wife, who would have been the mother of Jonathan, his friend, and the mother of Michal, his first wife, into his own harem. At least, not for any purposes of sexual intimacy. The statement simply states that if the blessings that were given to David were not enough, he didn't need to steal or cheat or lie to get more blessing, but simply to rely upon God. So this is not an affirmation of David's right to have multiple wives. His weakness was with women or what got him in this shape in the first place. This verse does not say, listen, I gave you all of these women, and if you would have needed, if you would have wanted more women, I would have given you more women. You didn't have to take Uriah the Hittite's wife. That's not what this passage is saying. He's saying, I gave you Saul in his house. I gave you Judah and Israel. There's no need for you to go take something that doesn't belong to you. If you had just asked me, I would bless you in any way you want to be blessed. So this verse does not, repeat, does not affirm polygamy. Some people might say that it does. I have to say that because some of you may have study Bibles that say, well, this means that God is affirming the right of a king to have multiple wives. Hogwash. Never. Not in a million years. The Bible never affirms polygamy. Sometimes God allowed polygamy, but he never blessed polygamy. Never. So remember, David got into this mess in the first place because of his problems with women. Now, what I want to do is stop here for a moment. 
actually stop here for what will amount to a couple of weeks. We're going to come back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 with this phrase in verse 13. Then David then said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan has said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin, and you shall not die. The superscription to Psalm 51 tells us that this psalm is a psalm of David, which he wrote after the prophet Nathan came into him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. There's no legitimate reason to doubt that this was indeed the occasion of the psalm. It certainly seems to fit. But where exactly in this narrative of 2 Samuel 7 does Psalm 51 fit? David wrote Psalm 51 sometime after the events. He doesn't stop and compose Psalm 51 on the spot when Nathan is confronting him. He does write this sometime after the event itself happened as a meditation on the need for forgiveness. So in doing so, he's trying to capture the intensity of a moment, the moment when he confesses, and he awaited for the word of forgiveness from Nathan. So halfway in between that verse, we'd insert this psalm in terms of what David is thinking retroactively. He writes it down later, all these things flooding his soul. David's waiting for a word for forgiveness from Nathan. He doesn't know if he's going to be executed. He doesn't know if he's, the kingship is going to remove, be removed from him. He just had the Davidic covenant given to him. Is that going to be pulled back, even though it seemed to be unconditional? We don't await word for forgiveness when we confess our sin. We're promised that forgiveness will occur when we confess. It's a promise. And that forgiveness is instantaneous. But we can still learn a great deal about confession from this man who was, after all, a man after God's own heart. The psalm, which we won't be able to study in its entirety tonight, can be divided up into three parts. The first part is the confession itself. That's verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 51. In verses 7 through 12, we see the relationship between restoration and spiritual service. And then in verses 13 through 19, we see the relationship between restoration and and worship. Psalm 51 is a prayer for forgiveness based upon the nature of the Lord and the desire for continuing fellowship with God. I want you to look at the first two verses for me. This will be our, these will be our verses tonight. The passage says, Be gracious to me, O God, or some of your Bibles may rightly read, Have mercy upon me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The first word there that's translated transgressions means more precisely my rebellious acts. Because that's what sin is, isn't it? Isn't it? It's rebellion against God. Hesha. It was used in military contexts to describe open and intentional rebellion. David's not trying to hide behind a cloak. Well, you know what? I really didn't mean to do that. Don't know how that happened. He's admitting before God in this confession, yes, I did it, sir. And it was open rebellion against you. I have no excuses. That's Pesha. He's not trying to cover up his sin at all. 
but he's calling it what it is, willful rebellion against God. David knew that murder and adultery were wrong, and he openly rebelled against what he knew to be God's will. That's one of the first steps in confession, admitting it. Yes, sir, I was wrong. No excuses. He already knows what your motivation was. You're not hiding anything from him. No excuses. Now, there's a second term for sin in this passage. It's in verse 2. It's translated my iniquity. It's the Hebrew noun avon, which means departing from the standard way. A third word is my sin. And the verb behind that is hata. And it clearly means to miss a goal or miss a way. Sometimes in theology we say that sin, the New Testament word, harmatia, is missing the mark. It's like if there was someone with an arrow and a target and a bullseye, and the arrow missed the target. We would say that's harmatia, or that's missing the mark. It's hata. But sin is more than just missing the right mark. Sin is also hitting the wrong mark. So we don't want to restrict it just just not doing the right thing. Because when we're not doing the right thing, we're doing the wrong thing. At least in David's case, it seems to be an either-or proposition here. Now, I'm not saying that everything that we do has a moral component. What shirt you chose to wear tonight, or what route you decided to take to church, or where you decided to eat dinner, those things don't typically have a moral component to them. They may, but they don't typically have a moral component. We're talking about things that do have a moral component. There is an either-or situation. In the Old Testament, all the words for sin have to be measured against the standard in the Old Testament, which was the Torah, the law of God. Here David has admitted that his actions were rebellion against God's law, turning aside from it and missing it. David's picture of his sin is direct, open, honest, and painful. With those ideas in mind, I think we can better understand his prayer. He uses imperatives, which are commands. Be gracious to me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. But these imperatives, as they're used here, are not commands, but they're urgent requests. They give us an idea of the intensity, the passion that he desires this forgiveness. The first of these is have mercy upon me. That's in verse 1. The passage begins this way. Or New American Standard says, be gracious to me. The meaning of this word, kanan, and its related nouns, is, is reserved for undeserved or unmerited favor. In fact, with, with kanan, the person deserves just the opposite of what they're getting. They, they may deserve death and they get life. They may deserve imprisonment and they get freedom. That's kanan. That's mercy. David did not merit God's kanan, his mercy or his favor. Not with these gross sins. He was a true believer. But he also knows what he deserves. He knows the Mosaic Law. He knows the penalty for murder and the penalty for adultery. But his prayer is for God's mercy. Have mercy upon me. Interesting, he has shown no Hanan, or in the next phrase, according to thy loving kindness, which is our favorite chesed. He has shown no hanan, he's shown no mercy or loving kindness to Uriah, or to Bathsheba, really, for that matter. But he wants it. 
He's asking for it for himself. Now, the only way he can do that is if his pride is long gone. David is now humble. We all, we might could even say David has been humiliated by what has happened, by what he's done. There's no pride in this at all. That is long, long gone. He's doing this in humility. Here we come to a very important point of clarification. One of those basics about which I spoke earlier. God's forgiveness, according to David, a man after God's own heart, in this psalm, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God's forgiveness is an act of mercy. In my conversations with believers, I have come to understand that many believe that God's forgiveness is an act of the justice of God. Many think that this is akin to a legal transaction. And for support, the New Testament verse, 1 John 1, 9, is appealed to that particular phrase, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins. But that phrase does not mean that God is acting simply from His justice, but rather that because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, God is justified when he forgives. This is more than a trivial distinction. Much more. When we go to God in prayer and confess our sins, when we admit our guilt, we are seeking an act of mercy or grace on God's part, not an act of justice. Salvation is by grace through faith. Restoration to fellowship is by grace through confession, but grace is in both of those equations. God is self-obligated to forgive our sins when we confess. Self-obligated. He has promised. He is faithful to that promise, which means He will forgive us every time that we confess. God is not bound by His justice to forgive. He has obligated himself to graciously forgive every time we confess. Can you see how this might affect our attitude in confession? If we view confession simply, solely as a legal transaction between me as a sinner and God as God, we might be tempted to view God as something like a cosmic computer or machine cosmic gumball machine, perhaps. If I put my quarter in, God is obligated to spit out a gumball. Well, only because he's self-obligated. He took it upon himself. Let me say that there is a legal aspect to this transaction. Certainly there's a legal aspect because Christ had to pay the penalty for the sin that frees God to forgive the sin when we come to him in confession. It frees him. But according to this passage, it doesn't necessarily obligate him. He's not, he is never obligated from without, only from within, by his own character. My point is that it is not exclusively or even primarily legal. It's primarily an act of mercy when he forgives. 
That's going to happen every time. We can count on it. But this is the mindset that we need to enter into confession with. We don't deserve to be forgiven. Just like we didn't deserve to be forgiven initially when it came to salvation. It's an act of grace. When we come to him in confession, we don't deserve to be forgiven and restored to fellowship. See, that's the attitude I'm trying to, to guard against. We need to come on bended knee with an attitude of humility. Not like we have God on a technicality. And yes, God, I did it, and you have to forgive me. There's something wrong with that attitude. It's an attitude of rebellion. The infinite personal God of the universe is gracious, and he is merciful. He's promised that he'll forgive every time when we admit our guilt. His promise means that he's self-obligated. He is never obligated from outside of himself. His creature cannot do that to him. So we can't get him on a technicality. This is not a courtroom where we say, I've got you. You have to do this. He's going to do it. But you have no right as a creature to say, I've got you. You have to do it. That's my point. It's an act of mercy. God doesn't get backed into corners by his creation. He doesn't get caught in technicalities by his creation. So what's the application? Never make a flippant confession. Because you will never get God on a technicality. Confession should always be made in humility. I'm talking about a real confession. In humility. Forgiveness is not something that we ever demand of God. How can we, in the first place, with a straight face, ever demand mercy? You don't demand mercy or you don't demand grace. We count on his, his eternal character. I'm counting on that. But there's a big difference between counting on the fact that he's promised to do something and demanding it in arrogance. I wish this wasn't a problem. But I'm not bringing it up tonight because it's never been a problem. So we never come to God flippantly. We always come to God seriously. The degree of seriousness is not going to affect the, the degree of forgiveness unless that degree of seriousness bounces over or falls over into flippancy. Then it's not a real confession in the first place. Flippancy is not a confession. Not according to the word of God. There's a parallel verb in the second verse that's translated blot out. Blot out my transgressions. Now you see he says according to the greatness of your compassion. I not say anything about according to the greatness of your justice. But it's according to the greatness of your compassion, which, by the way, David had not shown. There's irony all over this passage. The word makah is a figure of speech here, of course, comparing divine forgiveness to God's scraping of a plaque or a piece of pottery. This is a vivid picture of the removal of sin. It's not an easy procedure. It takes, it takes God great effort, or it took God great effort, to accomplish something that we take so flippantly so often. It cost him the death of his son. Every time we sin, we're pouring salt into the wounds of Christ. He had to pay for that sin that we do so flippantly with such regularity, and we call a mistake in judgment. That was just a little mistake in judgment. Well, it was a sin, and Christ had to pay for it. We need to take it seriously. There's another imperative. The first one was, have mercy on me. The second one, blot out my transgression. The third is, wash me. Havas. Since this verb is used for washing clothes, or was used for that, it's a figure of speech, comparing laundering with forgiveness. 
in the ancient world, they didn't put the clothes in a dishwasher. Obviously, they took them down to the river. And part of what they had to do, if you've been in other parts of the world where they still do this, you see the women come down, and they beat, they beat the clothing. They beat the dirt right out of it. And they'll scrub it, and they'll beat it some more. That's what David wants. He wants that sin beaten out of it. Now, he's not talking about doing penance here. He's talking about God doing the work and just being thoroughly clean. Don't just dip me in the water. Cleanse me. And then finally, the fourth verb there is cleanse me from all my sin. Taher. It refers to ceremonial cleansing or a ritual cleansing. So he used four verbs. Have mercy, blot out, wash me, and cleanse me. And the intensity, the reason this poetic, in this poetic use of four verbs, it indicates that David wants God to make him perfectly clean. He has no interest in partial restoration. He wants to be thoroughly clean from all the sin that he has committed. It's the same thing in 1 John 1, 9, the New Testament verse. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we go to him in confession, he doesn't let a couple linger. Human beings do that. When we go to a human being and we say, hey, listen, I was wrong about that. If it's a good friend or a good spouse, they're going to say, okay, hey, listen, it's forgotten. It's over with, done with. And it's not brought up again. But that's not the way most human beings do it. We hold back just a little bit. Just a little bit for future reference in case they ever get out of line again. You know what I mean. Just in case. If it's just in case, I'm going to bring it up. You know, that's not God. Now, God may discipline us. But in terms of the forgiveness, he washes us clean. And he has the ability to do that without violating his own character because his son has already paid the price on the cross. But I hope what you've seen tonight is that while he is free, and that's the legal part of this transaction, he is free to do it. This is not primarily a legal transaction between you and God. It's based upon a legal transaction, but it's an act of mercy. I'm trying to tell you, this is personal. You're not dealing with a machine or a computer when you're dealing with God. That's the God of pantheism. That's not even a theistic God. We're dealing with a person, a person who has been offended by our sin. So David doesn't require or even request partial restoration. He's going to say later on, he wants complete restoration. Restore me to the joy of my salvation. In other words, I want to be like I was before. I've been miserable for all this time that I've been walking out of fellowship with God. I want to be restored to what I was before. And he will be. We're going to study it over several weeks, but let me give you a preview. He will be restored to the joy of his salvation. Even though for ten years, God is going to spank him like few people have ever been spanked. This fourfold thing that he mentioned before, how this man was should be punished fourfold, he prescribed his own punishment. God is going to beat the living tar out of him, not punitively, because his sin has been forgiven, but in love, in correction. Just the same way that you do with those that you love, your children. You don't discipline them because you hate them. You don't discipline them to make life miserable for them. You discipline them with a purpose so that they won't do it again. When my nephew, who is about yay big now, plays football at the University of Georgia, was about this big, he stayed with my mom and dad a lot. And then my nephew started, he ran out into the street. My dad grabbed his little tail and swatted him right on the rear end. I said, don't ever do that again. Jeff, the car always wins. 
Now, he didn't do that because he didn't love his little grandson. My nephew. He did it because he did love his little grandson, and he never wanted to see that happen again. So David is going to have a lot of trouble over these next ten years. But at the same time, this is the paradox of it all. Since he's now walking in fellowship with God, even through the misery, he still will be restored to the joy. There is an interesting thing here, and that is that David's appeal to God for restoration is based upon God's character. David has no leg to stand on, as it were. He's guilty. He's under a penalty of death. But he knew the Lord. And at times like this, he could appeal to the attributes of God that he knew so well. So he bases his appeal for forgiveness upon them. Be gracious. Have mercy upon me in accordance with your hesed, your love, your loyal love, your mercy. According to the greatness of thy compassion. Again, I said that's ironic because David had shown no compassion, Uriah the Hittite. Blot out my transgressions. Cleanse me from my guilt. So we notice that this first imperative is an appeal for grace or mercy. We don't really need to add anything to this. But it's good for us to note as we close tonight that David's hope for restoration was based upon God's character, God's chesed, his love. As David told you.